from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the CER Podcast. My name is Sophia Besch. I'm a research fellow here at the Center for European Reform. And today I'm in conversation with François Esbourg, who is calling in from Paris. Uh, François Esbourg is a special advisor at the Fondation pour la Recherche Stratégique, a think tank in Paris. He was previously chairman at the IISS in London, uh, international security advisor to the French Ministry of Defense and a founding member of the French-German Commission on Security and Defense. He's also a CER board member. What we want to talk about today is EU defense. We have seen a lot of activity on the EU side over the past year, both by the member states and the institutions. And we want to talk about what motivates the EU's defense efforts and where we are headed. But before we zoom out, I want to zoom in and discuss the concrete proposal of the European Defence Fund. Let me quickly sum up what the fund does. So with the Defence Fund, the European Commission is for the first time proposing to use money out of the EU budget to incentivize member states to do more joint capability development. And for that, the Commission is offering to spend from 2020 on 500 million euros annually on research, which would make the EU the fourth biggest research funder in Europe. And also from 2020 on, provide 1 billion euros annually to co-finance new military prototypes. The key is that only joint projects get commission money. And the commission wants to do that to counter fragmentation, duplication and protectionism on the EU's defense market. Now, these are the broad strokes. The reception of this proposal in the pundit world has been very mixed. There are those who think that this fund is a game changer and those who think it's either insignificant or unrealistic. François, which category are you in? What do you make of the fund? Well, uh, the easy answer to that one is time will tell. Time will tell for a very basic reason, and that is the fund will become serious if the member states and the institutions take it seriously, and it won't be serious if they don't. And we're not yet sure which one of these two alternatives will actually happen. The easy one is the uh, the smaller fund, the 500 million euro for defense-related research. Here, the model is actually well tested since a bit more than 10 years ago. Uh, the Commission set up a, a European security research program. So we know how this works, and there's no rocket science in, in applying to defense uh, the same organizational management and financial recipes. The more uncertain one is the, the big one, uh, the one in which the uh, European Commission uh, spends a billion a year out of the EU budget. Now, on paper, this doesn't look overwhelming because, after all, the EU spends about 150 billion euro a year on defense. But in reality, if this happens, I mean, if these monies are actually available, then the comparison is not going to be with overall defense spending. It's going to be with defense acquisition spending. And that today is uh, only slightly more than 35 billion euro a year. Uh, so 5 billion as compared to 35 billion, that's actually a lot of leverage to sweeten uh, joint projects uh, uh, as opposed uh, to... Uh, standalone, purely national uh, projects. And furthermore, you can uh, introduce criteria for defining what is a joint project. You can do that in a manner which facilitates uh, defense industrial rationalization uh, in Europe and in favor of European jobs. 
we already see some of these criteria operating on the research side. One of the criteria is you cannot be part of the program if you're a company which does not have its basic R&D core in the European Union. If you apply this sort of criteria to the defense fund overall, you're in effect saying it will become much more difficult for the Americans or other people, Russians, Chinese, Israelis, uh, to sell uh, weapons off the shelf to European Union members. So if, if this actually gets up and running, it, it will indeed, over a 10 or 15 year period, uh, have very substantial effects in conceptual terms. For the first time, a, it looks as if the European Union could, act, has, could actually have found a recipe which has an, uh, the advantages which I described, but also another advantage, and that is NATO doesn't do this. So this is not a threat to NATO. This is not something which undermines uh, the transatlantic uh, compact. And that is, of, of course, an important consideration at a time when there, there, there are some fears uh, that our American friends will be investing politically and strategically less in NATO than they used to. So the Commission is not the only EU institution involved here. There is the EDA as well, of course, the European Defense Agency. And the EDA manages the so-called Capability Development Plan, which outlines the capability priorities that member states have agreed to jointly invest in in the future. And we know that member states never really allowed the agency to become what it was designed to be. They never gave it really responsibility or funds to work. They have blocked it in the past. What makes you think that in the future the European Defense Agency will have more influence? Well, first of all, you're absolutely right about the, about the EDA. Uh, the short answer as to why it's been underfunded and underused, the short answer is two letters, UK. Now the Brits are out. The member states uh, should invest a lot more in the EDA. Uh, this, is, this is, of course, also made easier by one not minor consideration. When, when you are in a universe in which the amount of money available shrinks, which has been the case for defense spending in the European Union for the last 25 years. Huh? So when you're on a, a shrinking set of assets, you're obviously going to make it extremely difficult for anybody to have access to the pile of money that you still have. You are not going to be generously minded. You are not going to push uh, for a jointness. Now, of course, since 2014, things have changed. Increases in defense spending, still quite modest, but they're there, uh, and they're picking up in Germany in particular. Other countries, uh, notably in Scandinavia, Poland are moving in the same direction. So there's more money to play with. When you have more money to play with, then you can start becoming creative. Like, for example, you can say, oh, yes, I can spend a little bit of that on developing the EDA because it won't take, it won't take much to give the EDA much more serious analytical and concept-making uh, capacities. But, of course, today its budget is 
so measly. We do not even know where we could save money because we do not have enough money in order to make the evaluation as to how much money we could save. And if you're in the commission, and if you have some money to play with, and commission is talking about a billion a year, then you can make it very clear to the member states that if they want to be fully involved, they must take the EDA seriously. And if they don't, well, then the Commission will play a greater role than they may want to in terms of how it wants to spend its one billion. I want to make use of, of having you here and really get into the weeds of financing of uh, the projects because it's not quite clear yet how member states are actually going to do that. The Commission wants to create an umbrella structure that can help finance joint projects at low interest rates by relying on government guarantees. And the Commission has floated the idea of a European defense bond, for example, or a European stability mechanism for defense. That's a structure that allows the EU to pool capital and raise money from private markets. And the Commission also wants to exclude money spent on joint capability development and procurement from the calculations of national budget deficits. So that way, the countries that invest in defense, they would not be penalized by the rules of the Stability and Growth Pact for increasing their deficits. Now, these plans, I think, are very likely to encounter opposition from the finance ministry in Berlin. Well, maybe. But, uh, you know, the, the commission tends to be a fairly careful animal uh, uh, when it comes to uh, making life difficult for the Germans. My assumption is that the commission... Uh, would not even have begun to explore these very French ideas that you have just laid out if it hadn't had some suspicion that these things would actually fly in, uh, in, in Berlin. You take, for example, uh, what you said about not counting defense investment in, 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 in the deficit targets. This is an old French idea. It was discussed back in 2001 at a defense minister's summit of the EU in Portugal, in Feira, I think it was. The Germans, of course, and the Commission and most other countries said, no, of course not, this is not doable. All of a sudden, it's not the French who are talking about it, it's the Commission. Uh, ditto uh, with uh, 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 Eurobond funding, because in effect what you described is Eurobond funding. Uh, When Thierry Breton, who was pretty much the uh, originator of this whole defense investment uh, idea a few years ago, when he came up with this, my reaction was, this guy is crazy. The Germans are going to laugh at us. They're going to say, oh, this is another great French idea to spend German taxpayers' money. And now, what do we hear? We hear the commission talking about this. A... Yes, of course, there will be resistance in Germany. But when I listen to uh, Wolfgang Schäuble and Ursula von der Leyen and Angela Merkel, or each one of them speaking in Munich last February, the same day, all saying, we have to increase defense spending and we have to make it more European. From your defense minister in Germany? Yes, this is logical. Chancellor, maybe. But Wolfgang Schäuble... He's supposed to be the finance minister. He is the guardian of the big black, uh, the Schwarze Null. And he's the guy who's saying we have to spend more money on defense and it has to be more European. So my suspicion is that after the elections in Germany, uh, the space for decision making on this will actually open up. 
surprising things could happen. Fascinating. Um, I want to ask you one final question on the Defence Fund before we broaden the discussion a little bit. And as I'm calling from London, one last question on the UK's role. There is in the Commission's proposal no mention of uh, the money being available for third states, and the UK will be a third state, much like uh, Norway or others, uh, after Brexit. Is there a chance, do you see a motivation, not just on the side of London, but also perhaps Paris and other member states that work closely with the UK, to involve the UK even after Brexit? Yeah, the short answer is yes, of course, and the long answer is yes, of course, but it's not as simple as that. So the short answer first, uh, Britain and France have deeply integrated some of their key defense industrial capabilities, notably in the field of missiles. Europe's main ability in the field of missiles is now Franco-British. There is a joint interest, of, of course, uh, to maintain that level of integration because it's, uh, it's a, actually one of the most important rationalizations in terms of cost-saving and efficiency that we've had over the last 20 years. We've also been bringing together uh, the management of our nuclear stockpiles, which is obviously a rather delicate and important uh, issue. And uh, Britain and France are the only two countries to have uh, nuclear weapons in Europe. So they're not pretty obviously, pretty obvious natural partners. And there's a lot of work going on between France and Britain in the field of non-piloted combat air vehicle fighting drones. So there's a lot riding on the preservation of the Franco-British uh, bilateral defense relationship. And that relationship, I think, in order to prosper, will have to have some sort of access uh, to the European uh, defense uh, 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 funds. Uh, uh, this is something which is going to have to be discussed. Uh, other countries, and I think here in particular of Norway, uh, can also be involved. Norway has a, has a relatively small but qu quite specialized and uh, competent uh, defense industry uh, uh, as well. Europe is quite good at finding ways to do ad hoc operations like this. After all, a country like Switzerland, for example, which is not part of the European economic space, Uh, has been part of the European bidding process uh, for research and development and actually one of the better performing uh, uh, countries uh, in, that, uh, in that framework. So if we could do it for, for Switzerland, there's no particular reason why we shouldn't be able to do it uh, for Norway uh, or, or, or Britain. Germany also has an interest in this kind of solution because Airbus, uh, although it's uh, primarily a Franco-German Spanish uh, company uh, has a substantial part of its uh, subcontractor uh, activity uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, preserving the value chain is going to be quite important for Airbus. Oh, I think that's exactly right. So I want to talk to you about the Franco-German partnership as a strong motivating force for these recent defense initiatives. The political will in Berlin and Paris is strong. That's what we keep hearing. But do you think that there's a risk that EU defense cooperation becomes a political integration project for these two countries? That it's sort of the low-hanging fruit of cooperation because it's much harder to agree on anything when it comes to Eurozone reform and that over this enthusiasm for strengthening the EU, they might actually neglect strategic considerations? Yeah, 
I think the risk was very real, even only a short time ago. I think it's receding. The notion that uh, you can have some form of Eurozone governance uh, seems to be taking root in Germany uh, as well. You know, things always change when you have more money. Our economies are beginning to grow a little bit more again at last. Germany, of course, uh, has uh, surpluses now in the various categories. I'm talking specifically about the current account surplus, but rather more about the budget stuff. There, there are some margins for maneuver, which did not exist two or three years ago. And if we have anything like the sort of growth which uh, seems to be picking up in France, uh, that and, and reform, uh, the reform program in France uh, could, uh, could lead here again uh, to uh, a much greater ability for France and Germany uh, to converge in, uh, uh, in institutional uh, grounds. So uh, I don't think that the risk that we're sort of just playing at European defense because we can't agree on anything else, I'm not sure that that risk is now as real as it, as it used to be. Now, on the defense side, Germany has a couple of basic decisions to take. One is essentially cultural, it's a, it's, and, that, and those are the most difficult decisions, uh, the cultural ones. Uh, uh, they don't cost money. They don't even require reorganization. They are essentially with what goes on in people's heads. Uh, and that is indeed uh, what kind of action does Germany want to see the European Union be engaged with uh, when it comes to projecting defense and security uh, uh, in the world. A cultural revolution, which is going to take time, which will be difficult, there are signs that it's beginning to happen. The other thing is much more material, and that is what kind of aircraft will Germany order to replace the aging tornadoes, and will those aircraft continue, as they do today, to have a nuclear role, which they have in the framework of NATO. This is something which the Luftwaffe is supposed to be working on in 2018 to make recommendations. And this is a topic which came up at the French-German uh, ministerial meeting in Paris on the 13th of July. Uh, the press went a bit quick off the mark the, by saying that France and Germany were going to produce a new aircraft together. Uh, well, I, I hope that's true, but uh, it's, it's not going to be that simple because before anything like that happens, there's going to have to be this big debate in Germany about uh, what these aircraft are actually going to be for. But this is an enormous procurement. It's one which will occupy the next decade, the 2020s, in terms of spending money and doing stuff. So, so on the one hand, we have the cultural change. And on the other hand, we have this big material issue. Uh, this means that the new French government and the, the new coalition government in Germany at the end of the year, you know, by 2018, they will have a lot not only to talk about that they already have begun to do, but they will actually have to make joint decisions. François Espour, thank you so much for talking to me. Okay, it's been a pleasure. If you enjoy listening to the CER podcast, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes. And while you're there, please leave a rating or review. It helps other people find us. And you can also let us know what you think on Twitter at CER underscore EU.